0: Well, good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to uh, Redemption Church this morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, as you guys know, there is a triathlon happening right out there. And uh, Fleet Feet, Fleet Feet Sports, who's like a local store, has a tent set up right there. And when they runners run by, they're ringing a cowbell. So when I hear that, I'm going to pretend like they're cheering for me. Are you guys? Yes, I'm doing so good. Um, no, seriously, thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, last week, we finished up a series through the book of Acts. Uh, this week, we're starting a new series called Before All Things, where for about the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians and specific things from the book of Colossians as it relates to um, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so we'll we'll dive into that in just a second. Um, but if you would, let's, let's pray before, before we get started. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Um, Thank you that we can take just a few minutes and gather together and sing and pray and hear from your word and be together and meet with you in this place. And God, I pray over the next few minutes as I talk through your word, as we talk about the preeminence of Christ now how Christ is before all things, God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds to draw us to you. I pray that Jesus would be lifted high and that we would be drawn to you because of Christ, because of Christ alone. Holy Father, I recognize that my words are of little importance, God, but your words are of utmost importance. So may we hear from you. I pray that you would use me as an instrument of grace, your mercy, your love, an instrument of the gospel that Jesus would be glorified and that we would be drawn to you. God, I ask all this in the name of your precious Son, our Savior. Amen. So if I were to ask you to tell me three or four or five, whatever it might be, characteristics about yourself, just a few things about you that would help me to know you better, like what would you tell me? What would be the things that you would want me to know about you like so if we were going to have a serious conversation I was going to tell you three or four or five things about me I would probably want you to know right up front that my love language is sarcasm Um, that doesn't make sense to a lot of people it makes complete sense to Zach Um, I'm usually grumpy or angry all the time and always suspicious of everything that's just that's baseline for me is grumpy Um, I've been married for almost 21 years that's not why I'm grumpy that's why Amy is grumpy not me (laughs) Um, I've got two daughters whom I love dearly, uh, but they have changed me dramatically, uh, hopefully for the better, and who have opened my eyes to all sorts of things um, that I've never even considered before. Um, and I want you to know here lately I've got a new hobby. I'm really into road biking, and uh, I went my farthest distance on a road bike yesterday with a, with a bunch of guys yesterday morning. And, and whether or not you can relate to me on those things or I can relate to you in the same way, those things still characterize me in one way or another. Those things are unique to me on some level and they may not be unique to you. Several months ago, I had the good fortune of attending the Monday practice round of the Masters Tournament with uh, Ben, who is, who is out of town this morning, and Wes and Zach and a few other guys. Um or several other guys. And as we were all standing around the course, or, you know, sitting, or, or whatever, watching um, the golfers go around and, 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 and play their practice rounds, practice different shots and whatever, we would see these golfers far off down the fairway or across the course, or walking to the tee box, or doing whatever they were doing, and Ben would say, oh, that's, um, that's Freddie Couples, I can tell by the way he's walking. Now, Mind you, we couldn't see these guys. They were too far away to even know who it was. But somebody else would walk, you know, 100 yards away, and Ben would be like, oh, that's Bubba Watson. I can tell by the way he walks. Or that's Phil Mickelson. I can tell by the way he walks. And so immediately we all started to make fun of Ben for this unique talent that he has to tell people um, by the way they walk. But Ben, over and over, would say, that's so-and-so. I can tell by the way he's walking. I can tell by his gait. I can tell by how fast he's walking or, or whatever it might be. And Ben is such a fan of golf and has watched enough golf to know individual golfers by the unique characteristic that is the way they walk. Back in July, the elder team and our wives, we had the chance to to go away for a weekend retreat and spend some time together, praying together, talking about what it means to, to have a great team and what's best next for Redemption Church over, over the course of this coming year and the next year. And we came out of that weekend spending a couple of weeks studying the book of Colossians together and specifically looking at the question of what does our walk or our gate, if you will, look like so that when somebody is looking at us from a distance, they would identify us as a disciple of Jesus. And asking ourselves, right, as we looked at the biblical text, what are the characteristics of a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it look like to walk as a disciple of Jesus? What's unique about that? And even more so, what are the characteristics of a church where its members are growing in that discipleship? Right, if someone is increasingly submitting all areas of life to Christ, if we are increasingly submitting all areas of our life to the Lordship of Jesus, what will we look like? What characteristics will define us? How will we walk? What will our gate be? Just what does a life saturated by the good news of Jesus look like? And so over the next several weeks, that's what we're going to investigate together as we move through the book of Colossians and probably some other places in Scripture as well. But the goal is that we would be encouraged to follow Jesus radically together, to increasingly submit all of our lives to Jesus together as we see the good news of um, The good news of the gospel demonstrated in how Christ has gone before us in all things, how Christ is before us in all things, and generosity and servanthood and work and rest and prayer and and some other areas as well, right? And so the goal today and the rest of the time that we have together is to look at Colossians 1 verses 15 through 23 and to examine very specifically how Jesus is before us in all things. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn there... Colossians 1, 15 through 23. It'll be on the screen as well. But specifically, looking at how Jesus is before all things, both in time and in position. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. who who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." This passage is without a doubt, like the book of Colossians, utterly Christ-centered. Verses 15 through 20 is either a poem that's constructed by Paul or an early Christian poem or hymn that Paul is using in the book of Colossians. If you look at it in, in the Greek, um, if you look at it in Greek, you can tell that it's like ancient Near Eastern poetry. But ultimately it's a reminder that Christianity is not just a religious system. It's not just a way to live or a set of doctrines or how to be saved or how to get to heaven or a list of rules or any of those things. Christianity is ultimately about Jesus. It's ultimately about Christ, and that's what these verses remind us of. And if you just look at verses 15 through 20, right, verse 15 says he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, the, the specially honored First and only son over all of creation. Verses 16 tells us that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Verse 16 tells us that all things were created through him. Verse 16 tells us that all things were created for him. Verse 17 says he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In verse 18, he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. In everything, he is preeminent. In verse 19, we see that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In verse 20, we see that Jesus reconciles all things to himself. And he makes peace by the blood of the cross. In verses 21 through 23 tell us how Jesus takes us who were once alienated from God and brings us into a right relationship with God, reconciles us. God, and there's so much here in, these, in this passage, and we could literally take every verse and break it down every Sunday and just stay in Colossians for a very long time. But what I want to do right now is just sort of focus in on what I think are the two big ideas of this passage. Number one, that Jesus is the creator of everything. Everything. And number two, that Jesus is our redeemer who is recreating us, his people, to be who he intended us to be and recreating the entire world and reconciling it to himself. And then I want to talk about the implications of those things, right? So starting in verse 15, Paul depicts Jesus as the eternal son of the father, the image of the invisible God, the rightful heir of creation. He goes on in verses 16 and 17 that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe. And in in those few verses, Paul is describing Jesus in the most exalted way that he can, using this cosmic language to exalt Jesus. And there's a direct reference back to the Old Testament story of creation that Paul is linking to. Jesus was the original creator. And so there's an affirmation in these words where Paul is saying Jesus is the creator of everything, that Jesus is God. And so the term firstborn is not meant to mean that he was the first creature to come into existence, but rather it means that Jesus is owner of the cosmos. It's a term of rank and authority denoting Jesus' right to rule creation. And it's a reference back to Old Testament passages like Psalm 89. Right? Verse 16 goes on to tell us that not only is the initial making of the universe centered on Christ, but also Christ is the goal of creation. Because verse 16 says all things have been created through him and for him. And so Jesus is not only the agent of creation, but its goal. And so Paul sees this biblical storyline from the very beginning, ultimately finding its terminal point in the person of Jesus. The cosmos was created for him, so everything is ultimately about him. That's part of what Paul is saying here. And so it's natural for verse 17 to say, and he is before all things, And in him, all things hold together because Jesus existed before all things. Jesus is the creator of all things and Jesus continues to exist in a place of preeminence and prominence and rank over all things. In time and in position, Jesus is before all things. If we move on to verse 18 and following, we begin to see the role that Jesus plays in the new creation as well in recreating people who are fallen, to be rightly reconciled to God, to be a new creation, to be a new creature that Paul uses that language over and over and over and making God's people new and redeeming them and recreating them and reconciling them to be God's very own. So just as Jesus was the creator of everything, Jesus is the author of this new creature, this new creation that God's people are becoming and that that they are making God's people new and redeeming them and creating a new group of people to be God's very own, the church, to be God's called out group that is set aside for God's purposes by the work of Jesus, with Jesus as its leader, with Jesus as the head of that church. And we see Jesus's action also in these verses in redeeming the world. Ultimately, everything that's fallen to be recreated and to be restored in a new heaven and a new earth like Revelation points us to. As Christ is the author of the entirety of creation, so also he is the author of this new thing. Hence, he's not only the firstborn over all creation, but the firstborn from the dead, the the first to rise from the dead, the author of the resurrection, the author of redemption and reconciliation. That's Jesus, right? His authority and power were put on display in bringing into existence the heavens and the earth and his authority and his power will again be demonstrated when he brings into existence the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus, the son of God, is at the center of creation but he's also at the center of redemption and that's what Colossians 1 says. Is telling us, Jesus, the Son of God, it's all about Jesus because Jesus is preeminent in all things because He created, because He holds it together, because the cosmos belongs to Him, and because He's recreating. Right? Even here this morning, as we worship together, it's imperative that we understand that Jesus is before all things. And so as we gather to worship, it's not about us, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's not about what music we like, it's not about whether we feel like we're being fed, it's not about whether or not we're discussing the right topics that we want to hear about, or whether or not you are here with your buddies experiencing great community, it's not about that. Those are good things, but we're here because of Jesus. It's about Jesus being before all things. It's about Jesus being preeminent. And so it must be that one of the defining characteristics of a disciple of Jesus, it must be that one of the defining characteristics of people who are increasingly submitting all of life to Christ, it must be that one of the defining characteristics of a church that is pursuing Christ in discipleship is that Jesus is before all things. It must be. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there, flip back to Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to read just two verses from Jeremiah chapter 2. And uh, they'll maybe be up here on the screen as well. But Jeremiah 2, verses 12 through 13. And listen to these words. They're very strong words. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. These verses hold some incredibly aggressive language. It's heavy. The prophet is saying that God has said to all of creation, be appalled. Be shocked, be desolate, because my people have forsaken me. Because my people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me. Right? And essentially what God is saying is that they have made me an afterthought. They have made me something secondary. They have made me something less than what is primary so that God is no longer the primary thought of his people, the primary goal of his people, but he's been relegated to the side, to some corner. He's been forsaken. God's people are saying, we believe in you, we like you, we enjoy you, and we want to be happy with you. But at the same time, God is not their goal, God is not their pursuit, and not the pinnacle of their worship. Right? The passage goes on to say, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And whatever their pursuits were, and, and we know from the book of Jeremiah that their pursuits centered around idolatry, between seeking to satisfy themselves with something other than Christ, or something other than God, trying to drink from wells that hold nothing of value. They keep drinking dust to try and satisfy themselves. That's what the language depicts, that they're drinking dust and sand to get relief. They keep drinking dust and choking. Right? Have you ever tried to drink sand? That's a ridiculous thought. It doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense whatever. And if that was true in the book of Jeremiah, what's changed between then and now? If God said to his people in the book of Jeremiah that forsaking God for anything else was a worthless pursuit, then what's changed? If Jesus is not before us in all things, then we're drinking from wells that hold no water and we're choking on dust. It must be that Jesus is before all things. It must be. Because Jesus is preeminent, because Jesus is before all things, because that is true, whether we acknowledge it and believe it or not, whether we live like it or not, because it's true, I think there are two big implications from this truth that we have to grasp right away. The one thing I want you to see is that it must be a characteristic of a disciple. It must be a characteristic of a church that's growing in discipleship, that Jesus is before us in all things. That must be true. But there are two big implications to that truth, right? And here's the first one. If it's true that Jesus is before all things then the main target of that truth should be the idolatry of our lives. Because it would be our idols that are taking the place of Christ. Right? It's easy to give lip service to our belief that Jesus is before all things. That's easy to say. But it's also easy for us to pursue functional saviors it's easy for us to pursue things that we think are going to bring us some sort of satisfaction some sort of relief something that will quench clench, i can't say it something that will quench our thirst in the place of jesus right and that can take different forms for all of us but if we're willing to ask ourselves what is it that we think we can't live without if we're willing to ask ourselves if i just have that thing then i'll be happy If I just have that thing, then I'll be satisfied. If we're just willing to put our finger on those things and to identify what they are, might those things truly be idols for us? What is it that we're pursuing that we can't live without? And that if we just get that thing, then our life will have purpose and meaning, right? And in our society and culture, that can take many forms, be it the pursuit of money or material things, Jobs, relationships, um, being fit, education, success, uh, houses, cars, clothes, whatever, or something um, something even different than that. Desiring significance and power and all these other things, right? But anything put in the place of the one God of all the earth becomes an idol. Anything that even remotely moves Jesus from being before all things in our life becomes an idol. N.T. Wright says this, to apply the gospel to the idolatry of our modern world will take more prayer, discernment, humility, and wisdom than it is usually given, but not to apply it in this way is implicitly to deny it. Right, did you catch that? He's saying that if we don't apply the gospel to our idolatry, then we are denying the gospel itself. If we don't apply the gospel to our lives to say, what is it? What are the things where Jesus is not before us, where Jesus is not preeminent in our lives? If we're not willing to allow the gospel to point those things out in our life, then we're denying it. You want a modern example of idolatry? It's not hard to find if you just look at the news this week, right? All of these people that would rather attack a woman who bravely stepped forward to speak of a past sexual abuse than to simply hear her story. All of those people who are striking out for the sake of political power and political sway to get their way, that's idolatry, that's a worship of power, that's seeking power as a savior, that's seeking a political savior. It is ridiculous, it's before us. That can't define us as a church, as a people of God. I read it, and I, I don't remember who said this, but someone has said that Jesus is a disappointment for anyone seeking salvation through politics and through power. That will always be the case. right? Jesus didn't shed his, the, the blood of his enemies in order to win. Jesus shed his own blood that we might be redeemed and reconciled To God, the the way of Jesus is not the pursuit of power and sway. That's just not it. Number two, this also comes from N.T. Wright. Let me just read this quote. There's no sphere of existence over which Jesus is not sovereign in virtue of his role both in creation, we read that at the beginning of this passage, And in reconciliation, in the second part of the passage, there can be no dualistic division between some areas which he rules and others which he does not. There is no neutral ground in the universe. Right? So part of the task of evangelism, part of the task of the church, part of the task in our lives is the proclamation to ourselves and to the world around us that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, that in Jesus, God's new creation has broken into history, and because of that, we are summoned to submit to Christ in worship, in love, in obedience. Right? And the logic of that message requires that those who announce it, those of us who would say, Jesus is Lord, we should be seeking to bring Christ's lordship to bear on every area of our life, on every area of our existence, in every area of our world, in our lives, in our church, in our world, in our homes. Jesus is Lord. Jesus must be Before us in all things. So, the the question for us this morning, the question that we must simply ask ourselves is this Where is Jesus not Lord of our lives? And what areas of your life is Jesus not before all things? Right? And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some very specific areas generosity, servanthood, work, rest, prayer, walking toward outsiders, community things like that. And can we say that Jesus is before us in all areas of our life, both those that we will be examining in the coming weeks, but also in other areas of our lives, right? Jesus is already before us in all things. He's the creator. He's preeminent. He's redeemed us. He's made a way for us to be reconciled to God. So how does that position of preeminence that Jesus holds play out in our lives down to very specific areas? Jesus is Lord that matters and there are implications. It must be a characteristic of believers that Jesus is preeminent in all of our life. It must be. There's no other option. And part of the implications of that truth is that the gospel must speak to our idolatry, to the things that would take the place of Christ in our lives. We must allow it to do so. We must intentionally do it together to speak to those areas. And secondly, we have to understand that Jesus is Lord. The proclamation of that is part of what it means to to be evangelistic to the world. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus rules. And there's no area of our life that that doesn't affect, there's no area of our life that we should not be seeking to submit increasingly to the lordship of Christ. We're gonna enter into a time of response. Um, and during this time of response, uh, I would encourage you, if need be, to sit where you are to pray and to reflect on the very things we've heard. Where Where, where is Jesus not Lord of our life? And, and what does that mean for us? Uh, during this time as well, we're going to have an opportunity to sing and, and, uh, and to worship through singing. The band's going to come back up and lead us in some songs, so we can do that as well. There's a giving table in the back where you can uh, give your tithes and offering as a continuing act of worship, um, as a way of understanding that Christ owns all things, and, and in giving back, we're acknowledging Jesus' lordship even in that way. Uh, we're also gonna have an opportunity to take communion. You can come down these side aisles, take the bread, tear it off, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We take communion because scripture tells us that when we do that, we're remembering what Christ did for us and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it. So if, if you're here and you can remember what Christ has done and you're willing to proclaim that you believe it, I would uh, invite you to come and take communion, if that's not something that you can proclaim or remember, then let me encourage you to sit right where you are, not because we don't want you to participate, but we want you to hear what we're saying. Jesus is Lord. Jesus did something for us. We're remembering that and we're celebrating it. So I'm going to pray for us and we'll move on. Holy Father, again, thank you for this opportunity we've had to be together, 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 uh, to hear from your word for just a minute to sing together, to pray together, to take communion. And God, even now as we continue our time of worship, even as we continue just for another few minutes to be together, I pray, Holy Father, that that we would continue to look to you, that you would speak to our hearts and minds. I pray that Jesus would be lifted up and that we would be drawn to you even in our remaining time together. And Holy Father, we ask all this in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.